how are we doing? Are we awake? Are we freezing? Is anyone else freezing? I'm, I've been complaining the whole time. I'm texting my wife. It's too cold. I don't have a jacket for this weather. Um, and she just calls me a Southern California born and raised boy. Um, my name's Darren. If you're new with us, we've been in the book of Mark. Grab a Bible. We've got a lot to go through. We're on our way to the cross. Um, so for the next three weeks, we're taking a look at Mark 14 and 15. And we're going to land in Mark 16 on Easter Sunday. So Mark 14... Verse 1, if you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles along the side. I'm going to read this. It's going to be on the screen. Um, This is so weird, this little gap. Like, I feel like I'm just going to move everything. I can walk all the way out there now with this new microphone. It's amazing. Mark 1, let's read this together. It was two days before the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread. The chief priests... And the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the festival, or there, there may be a riot among the people. Mark 14 changes the scenario. The teachers of the law, the scribes, they're no longer interested in just questioning Jesus. It says here that they are now seeking to conspire against him and kill Jesus. There's a plot against him. Verse, uh, ch- verse 3 through 10, it tells a story of a woman who comes to Jesus with this alabaster jar of perf- uh, perfume or ointment. It's an expensive gift. It would have been a, an entire year's worth of wages. And she offers it to Jesus as a worship, as a, as a, a sacrifice of love. And, and his disciples respond saying, shouldn't she give it to the poor? Because during the Passover, you actually gave offerings to the poor. And so they're concerned about that. They're trying to say the right things, but they don't recognize that this woman's bringing everything she has to prepare Jesus like a true king of Israel who would, before they're buried, be anointed with an alabaster jar of perfume or ointment or something that, that was of, of significant value. And so Jesus reclaims what she's doing to say this is an act of worship. And the story continues. I'm just trying to get us through. I want to settle into verse 22. And verse 10 says, uh, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests um, in order to betray him. When they heard it, they were greatly pleased. And they promised to give him money. So, they, uh, so he began to look for an opportunity to, per- to betray Jesus. So you have the plot is they're looking for a way to kill him. Then one of his disciples decides that he's going to betray Jesus and hand him over to the chief priests and the scribes. So things are heating up. You have this plot to kill Jesus. Then you have this intimate act of worship and love um, pouring out someone's uh, basically 401k, their social security onto Jesus as an offering of love. And then his best, one of his closest friends is going to betray him. You're just setting up the scene for what's coming. You with me so far? Let's look at verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And when he enters, say to the house owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything he had told them. And they prepared the Passover meal. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And when they had taken their place and they were eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. 
They began to be distressed and say to him one, one after another, Surely it's not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it, as it is written of him, but woe to the one whom the Son of Man is betrayed. By whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one to have not been born. Jesus is eating the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. And he, 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 he says that someone's going to betray him. And it's obviously Judas. And we know this. And, and he's eating the meal with him. And we, we've seen this throughout movies. We've read this story so many times. I just want to articulate this. Jesus is not a victim. He's orchestrating this whole thing. That some scholars would say that Jesus' vocation is to take the cross. His, his calling is to take on the cross for our sins. But then I want to focus on these next few verses. Let's look at verse 22. While they were eating, remember this is Passover, he took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them and said, this, take, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and all of them drank from it. He said to them, this is the blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I'll never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is my body. This is my blood. Um, I want to show you something. This is a paperweight. And it says London and Big Ben. And it sits on my desk. And it holds nothing actually down. It is just a paperweight of Big Ben. And you could say that this is a symbol of Big Ben, right? It says it on here, you can pass it around, you can hold it. But for me, if you know the story behind this paperweight, you'll know that this was, represents my very first trip to London. It represents a, my very first time out of the country, outside of going to Mexico on mission trips. It represents a trip I took with my two brothers um, when we were all in college together. It represents the stories that we had at my brother's tiny apartment because he lived in London. It represents our trip to, to Dublin as, as a young family. Uh, my brothers, we just, we had a blast. It represents so much more. I think about St. Patrick's Day in Dublin, 2004, because that's where I was with my brothers. And I think about that. This isn't just a paperweight. When you know the story behind something, it has so much more significance. This is a shirt and Brown's coming back in, um, according to GQ. Just kidding. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. Um, this is a shirt, and it's uh, it's been tailored to fit me a while ago, um, and it's from India. It's not just a shirt to me. This shirt um, was made by a, a tailor in India on my very first trip to India. Now, what's significant significant about my very first trip to India? Um, I was in school to be a pastor, and I was, it was my senior year, and I was excited um, to go into seminary, to go get my master's, and then pursue the academic route and go get a PhD. That's what I felt I was supposed to do. But I went to India, and I saw just the worst devastation of humanity. I saw the delete. I saw those that are considered untouchables starving for rice. I saw a six-year-old uh, girl that was born into brothels that she was um, uh, already... Uh, in sex traffic, she was sex trafficked. She was a, a, a prostitute in a village of prostitutes. I saw um, just uh, kids that were younger than me that were going to, to villages preaching the gospel with no Bible. All they had was a, 
the chapter of John in their own language and a bicycle and they would go into villages preaching the gospel and I saw that and my heart was ripped and I said I can't just go study this stuff I gotta go do something so for me this is so much more than a shirt I have one more thing to show you how about this Um, this is a belt buckle and uh, I used to collect belt buckles before I was a hip hop dancer I used to collect (laughs) belt buckles (laughs) I really did, and uh, my uh, my dad used to wear them. I was a cowboy growing up. Whatever. Um, this is ridiculous. Why am I sharing this? Um, but this was one of my dad's favorite belt buckles, and uh, it actually has a knife in there, so it's really cool. It's a concealed weapon, but uh, but my dad gave it to me, and uh, it it was a lot to him, and it was one of his favorite belt buckles. So it's more than just a silly belt buckle. It's it has significance. It has meaning. Imagine if you were in the, the, the um, airport and you see an older lady run to a 22-year-old and just grab her and hug her. Now you could just be on your way to the baggage claim and you see this older lady hugging the 22-year-old and you could say it's just a hug. But what if the story behind the hug was that this was a woman that gave her daughter up for adoption and, and she's never seen her daughter since she was an adult. And now this hug has so much more meaning. See, I think we as Christians, we celebrate communion. I'm going to pull this over here. We celebrate cracker and juice. Cracker and some juice. And, and for thousands of years, Christians come together and, and they, they have their own different ways of doing it, but they celebrate this symbol called communion or the Lord's Supper. And today, I want to talk about the Lord's Supper. I want to talk about what's behind the Lord's Supper. Because as we come to the table today, um, we're going we're gonna to come and we're going to take a piece of cracker and dip it in some juice. And we know that that has some type of meaning with Jesus. But, but why does Jesus use the Passover meal as the fundamental symbol for his ministry. So if you'd bear with me, I want to look at the story behind our story and we've got to define what, it, what the Passover was all about. So are you with me on that? So we're going to look at the Passover. We'll come back to Mark and then we'll just land with this, what this means for us today. So go to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus 12 and we're going to go to verse 12. Um, but I need to give you some, some kind of history real quick. The story of Exodus is the story, are, you, are we awake? I'm sorry. Uh, and, it's, and it's quiet in here. St. Patty's Day yesterday. Um, okay, so Exodus. <laughs> it's the story of the nation of Israel. Israel, in the beginning of Exodus, is enslaved to Pharaoh. They're enslaved to the land of Egypt. And the, in the beginning of the story, they're crying out to God, God, rescue us, free us, deliver us, free us from this oppression. And so they're enslaved to Egypt and to Pharaoh, and God hears their cry. We know the story. We've seen it in all the films, the Ten Commandments. God sends an unlikely deliverer, Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh, who represents the God, to the Egyptians. They have a lot of gods, but he represents the deity in Egypt. And... Um, And Moses says, let my people go, and he doesn't, so God sends ten plagues. Do you remember this story? I'm just reviewing the story of Exodus in a nutshell. God sends ten plagues, and they're all fascinating plagues, locusts, gnats, darkness, um, and then the tenth plague, which we're going to spend some time on today. But, But what's fascinating about the plagues is that if you study Egyptian culture, 
Every single one of those plagues were a direct individual assault against false Egyptian gods. They were very strategic. So for example, when God makes the uh, darkness cover the land of Egypt, um, uh, the sun god Ra in Egyptian culture, that was an assault against his power. The gnats, the boils of skin, all of this had to do with the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And what's fascinating is that for the first nine plagues, if you read this in the book of Exodus, the Israelites were completely immune from the plagues. They didn't have to do anything and they weren't affected by the plagues at all. Only the Egyptians were under the wrath of God until the 10th plague. And the 10th plague, which is what I want to look, about, look at, is where we get this whole idea of Passover. Remember, the plagues were sent as a demonstration of who the Israel of God was, who Yahweh really is. And so he sends these pl plagues to combat the gods of Egypt, to free the nation of Israel. Um, out of the hands of the Egyptians so that they can be God's people. So we pick up in Exodus chapter 12. So for nine plagues, the, uh, the Egyptians suffer, not the Israelites. But the tenth plague, God gives the Israelites specific instructions. This particular plague is going to break Pharaoh's back. God says, I'm coming into the whole land of Egypt and, and I'm going to kill every firstborn animal and human being. We're going to get to 12 in just a second. What's interesting about the firstborn is that the firstborn children, sons really, were worshipped in Egyptian culture. This is how Pharaoh would pass on his deity. Think about this. Pharaoh is God in Egypt. And God, Yahweh, goes after the very symbol of how, de how the, his God, how his lordship is going to be passed on to the next generation. So he says, I'm going to kill all of the firstborn um, throughout the entire land of Egypt. And um, which the firstborn had all different things attached to it. And, and then he tells the Israelites that this, this judgment is going to happen on the whole land, not just the Israelites, but, or not just the Egyptians, but also the Israelites. But he gives them a way out. He says, sacrifice a spotless lamb. Use the blood of the lamb to cover and anoint your door frames. This is in chapter 12. We're going to pick up in verse 12. To cover the blood on the door frames and the door mantle. And then prepare a meal and eat it as if you're going to leave because this is the plague that's going to free you from the hands of Pharaoh. So while you're eating, eat it with your sandals on, eat it with your coat tucked in. He gives them specific instructions of how to eat this particular meal. And we pick up in verse 12 what God's going to do. Let's look at what he's saying to the Israelites. Verse 12 of chapter 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. And all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. This is where we get the word Passover. That God doesn't come in and take the firstborn. He passes over the house. And no plague shall destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be remembered for you. You shall celebrate it at your festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. In other words, from now on, from here on out, you will always remember what I've done. That uh, you, um, on the night of the 10th plague, the Israelites had two problems. And I want to get this, and we're going to get into the Passover meal. But on this particular night, thousands of years ago, 
The Israelites had two problems. Number one, they were enslaved to Pharaoh. And number two, they were under the judgment of God. Number two is that they were a subject to God's wrath. But God gives them an out, a way to um, be sheltered or covered from his wrath. And that's through the blood of a lamb. So, you with me? Do you remember that story? A couple of you remember that story? Okay. The Passover became the defining festival for the nation of Israel. This became the festival that they celebrated every year. In fact, it changed their entire calendar system. It gave them, uh, God says, from now on, the beginning of the year is going to be the Passover celebration. This is New Year's. This is also the Jewish Independence Day. This was the day that God's promises to Abraham were fulfilled. They, he freed the nation of Israel out of the hands of Pharaoh. He demonstrates his power and he pulls them out of the land, sets them up, tells them that you're going to be my people, gives them the law, teaches them his law, this exodus, and then sends them on their way to the promised land. This was the festival in the Jewish society. This was the year, I mean, everyone came into Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands of people came all over the world to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. This is an epic festival. And for thousands of years, the Jewish community every year gathered around a meal to remember what God did in Exodus. Because this meant that they were identified as the people of God. This meant that God is their protector and provider. The Passover symbolized that they were the, the, the people of God and they had been redeemed by God. It was liberation, it was identity, all of that stuff. So for thousands of years, the Jewish community celebrated Passover. And as time went on, by the time we get to the first century when Jesus is alive, when we're reading this story, Passover meal became institutionalized. It became what's called today Seder, which means an order of service. It's a very uh, ritual, it became ritualized. This commemorating the day that God freed the nation of Israel out of Egypt became routinized. It became uh, institutionalized to where it had lost its meaning. But check this out. Built into the Passover meal, the Seder, there were four cups that represented the promises of God. And they gave order to the meal that Passover, and, and order to the way that, that Passover had to be remembered. They would sing psalms and they would drink four cups of wine. They still do this today. I've been, have any of you experienced a Seder meal? Some of us have. It's, it's amazing. They drink four cups and then drive home. I don't know how they do it. <laughs> Some of them drive home. Um, but they drink four cups of wine. Okay? And this is so important because it really ties into what Jesus does and how he redefines this Passover meal. So um, go to Exodus 6. I want to read where we get the four cups. So if you were going to go to a Seder today... There would be four different cups of wine and each one had a significant meaning and each one has a place to remember what God did at Exodus. And the four promises come from Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. You with me? Exodus 6, 6. So here's the four cups. Uh, I'll just read this, this blessing. The first one, it says this. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians. The first cup is called the cup of thanksgiving or the cup of blessing, or the cup of sanctification. It's basically a thanking God for all that he has done. And it comes from this, that God's promise is to free them from the Egyptians. The second cup is this promise, and deliver you from, the, from slavery to them. 
The second cup comes from this blessing, that God would deliver them from slavery. And that that represents what's called the cup of judgment. And the cup of judgment, was a, it represented the, the ten plagues that God caused to um, pour out over the land of Egypt. And it continues, and the third promise is this, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. The third cup is called the cup of redemption. This represents the fact that God would perform mighty works to redeem His people once and for all in the Exodus story. And the fourth and final cup, it says this uh, um, in verse 7, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. This, the fourth cup is called the cup of fulfillment of promise or the cup of covenant. So there's four cups. Th- okay, First cup of blessing, cup of judgment, cup of redemption, cup of promise of fulfillment. All of them come from Exodus. This is the meal that Jesus is partaking in. Okay, you with me? So that's the story behind the story. Now let's look about how, what Jesus does in Mark 14. He comes in Mark 14. Let's go back there. Oh, this is so good. Do you like this history? I love this, this type of history. Hopefully I'm not confusing you too much. Um, Jesus comes in. We, re- we picked this up in 11. He comes into Jerusalem on the Sunday before Passover. The Sunday before Passover, every single Jewish boy and girl and, and man and woman would have been, as a family, would have been picking out their spotless lamb for Passover. Sunday's the day that they go and pick out the lamb in Jerusalem. And Jesus comes in to Jerusalem on that day. What you do during that four-day period, you actually have it for longer, is you then go and inspect that spotless lamb. You spend days making sure that there's no blemish. Jesus doesn't go to, the, to Rome, to the centurion guards. He goes straight to the temple on Tuesday or that night and turns things up. He, he, he doesn't go to Rome and say, I'm going to be a political messiah. He goes to the religious leaders. He goes to the temple and he shuts down the systems. On Tuesday, he goes to the temple and he's questioned by the religious leaders. He's inspected by the religious leaders to see if he has fault. He's searched to see if he has blemish. On Wednesday, he's anointed by a woman prepared for burial. And on Thursday, his disciples say, where should we prepare for the Passover meal? And on Thursday evening, they, take, they, they consume the Passover meal. Now, Thursday evening for the Jewish calendar is Friday. Because their day starts at night. Do you know this? For the Jewish concept of day is that sundown is the beginning of the new day. So technically, he's eating the Passover meal the day that the lambs would be sacrificed. So that's the week that we're in. Mark 14, verse 22. While they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave, gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Jesus is not speaking literally, just theologically. He's speaking symbolically. In Aramaic, there's no way you could assume that Jesus is saying, This is my literal body. He's, he's redefining a, a symbol of Passover. He's redefining the bread of life that represents the manna that God will provide over time. He's saying, this is me. I am the life that you have. My body is this. You have to participate in this by believing, by consuming this. Participation. He takes that central figure of the bread, makes it about him, and then he says this. He takes a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, all of them, 
And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Two of the cups are, are consumed before the meal begins. Luke makes it clear that Jesus takes the third cup, which is what? Cup of redemption. And he says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. He takes a central symbol of God's redemption and says, this is what I'm about. What is he saying? He's saying, this is a new exodus. This is, this is a new covenant. This, is a, this isn't like the old one. This is brand new. This is a new relationship. This is a new identity. This is new liberation. He redefines thousands of years of history built into the yearly calendar and says, this day is now about me. He redefines the religious symbols to make it about his ministry. The most provocative religious symbol there is. And he makes it about him. It's the story behind the story. I mean, let's just go to Exodus. I just want to paint some more like language for us to see what he's doing this on purpose. Exodus 24. Jesus, look at what Jesus says. says this is the, my blood of the covenant. A covenant is not a contract. A covenant is an intimate uh, relationship between two parties that, that have to do with promising something, that they'll vow. The story of Exodus, when, when God makes a covenant with them, it's not about him saying, in order for you to be my people, this is what you have to do. He says, you are my people, this is what it means to live now. Okay? And, and the language that's used when, when God presents them to himself, in Isra- in, in, to the Israelites in Exodus, is language of marriage. That God makes a marriage vow to the people of God. He says, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people. Covenant has something to do with intimacy, with relationship, with, with complete and wholeness. But every time God does something with a covenant, or someone made a covenant, blood was always involved. So look at what happens in Ex- Exodus 24. After God brings the, the Ten Commandments and the laws to the people of God, Moses then has to make a formal covenant, a ceremony that will seal the deal. This is going to seal this new covenant that was made in Exodus. Verse 8 of 24 says this, Moses took the blood, dashed it on the people, and said, See the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. Do you think Jewish bells would have been going off when Jesus says, This is the blood of my covenant? Do you think as a Jewish person in the first century you probably would have been confused by what he was doing. Would you agree? Because this was the defining act and feast for your people. And Jesus is redefining the symbol symbol to make it about him. He takes bread, he takes a cup, and he brings a significant, transformative symbol to us to practice. Here's where I want to tie it. In Exodus... The story of the Israelites in Exodus, they had two problems. They were enslaved to Pharaoh, and they were under the wrath of God. Thousands of years later, Jesus comes to a people that are enslaved. We read in the first eight chapters of Mark 
that Jesus is simply going about liberating people. He's casting out demons. He's healing the sick. He's, he's bringing wholeness to the lepers. He's proclaiming the good news to everyone, to the oppressed. He's proclaiming liberation to those that have been enslaved. The second part of the book of, of Mark, which we didn't go here that much, is Jesus becoming the Passover lamb. That Jesus embodies the fact that we are all under the wrath of God. There were two problems for those people then and for the Israelites. They were enslaved and they were under the wrath of God. They were under his judgment. We have two problems today. Would you agree that we're enslaved and we're under the wrath of God? I know this is tough. I want to tie this together. It's going to land right here. Slavery. We don't have to look very hard to recognize that all of us are enslaved to certain things. False identities. Sin. Habitual behaviors. Addiction. Um, we, we, we harm each other. We, our marriages don't look like they should look like. We get divorced. We, are, 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 um, we, we have pride. We have insecurity. We have fear. We, we treat each other poorly. We gossip. We lie. We cheat. We steal. We manipulate. We understand that it's not very hard to recognize that we too are enslaved to some other power in this world. Would you agree? And that at the same time, because we have been designed for perfect harmony, God can't act any other way towards us except in love. And wrath is an act of love, mercy, and justice. We, are, we love wrath. Have you seen the movie Taken? We love it when someone's been harmed that retaliation happens, revenge takes place, and things are settled in the end. We hate the stories where it's left unsettled. And the truth about God is that He can't interact with us in our imperfection. Because we were designed to live in perfect harmony and anything other than perfect is not good enough for us and God. But just like the story of Israel, He provides a spotless lamb that covers both our slavery and His wrath. When Jesus institutes this new covenant, he says, I'm the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. We come uh, as Christians and we're ordered by Paul to, uh, to take communion, to take bread and wine and have a meal together in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. It's not an option when we come to gather together, guys. This symbol is, is expected. That we, when we come to the table, which we're going to have a time where we're all going to get up and come, we come examining the cost of the cross. That this symbol is now redefined on the cross. And if you read the rest of the chapter of, of 20, 20, verse 25, Jesus says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God is established or in full. What does that mean? He doesn't drink the fourth cup of the Passover. What was the fourth cup? The cup of fulfillment, of promise. Until it's finished on the cross, he won't drink the fourth cup. That's what he's saying. So how do we, how do we land to this? Well, I, I simply wanted to help give us insight this morning on the Lord's Supper, the communion. Uh, we come to remember that G what Jesus has done for us, to remember that the cost of the cup of redemption was personal to us. 
that the Son of Man came into this world in our sin, in our lies, in our brokenness, in our lust, in our gossiping, in our laziness, in our manipulation, in our pride, in our addictions. And he offers us a new way of life, here and now. That when we take the bread and dip it in the juice, we recognize that it was our sin that put him on that cross. That what we deserve is judgment and wrath but we're covered in the blood of Jesus. When we come, we, 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 we examine ourselves and, and offer a repentance to God for all that we've done. I mean, once we've accepted Jesus once and for all, we're forgiven for eternity, but every time we come, we, I, I think we should come in with a list. Not of, of, of works of righteousness, not of guilt, but simply recognizing that yet again, I'm freed from that stuff. When we come in with the baggage of our broken marriages in the way we've treated our spouses or in the way we've treated our friends or the way we've crossed the line with our, our girlfriends and, and our fiancés, when we come in with that type of list against us, we, we come to the, the cup and say, thank you. Thank you. Because I didn't get what I deserved. And then we eat it in celebration for what we now have. Lastly, I want to say this. This doesn't symbolize a ticket to heaven. I think many of us have a paradigm, and I was kind of thought this, that when we say a prayer and when we, when we dip that stuff, it's, it's about new life someplace else. When we, take, when we say the prayer, it's about a transa transaction that happens somewhere over there. And so when we die, we get to go somewhere else. But that's not the kingdom message, is it? The kingdom message about God's invasion of earth right now with his presence, with his way of life, with, with the kingdom of heaven. So when we take this, it's not about new life someday, it's about new life now. It's not about freedom from slave, slavery someday, it's about freedom now. You don't have to be defined by what, what you're holding on to, by the chains that you're gripping on. Jesus cuts them off once and for all. Pornography, lust, lies, bad relationships, he frees you from all of that. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. What we're going to do as a response is we're going to have some worship. Mickey's going to come back up, lead us in a time of worship, and then we will um, we'll come together and I'll invite um, all of us to come up. There's four tables around the room, but we'll just come up and take communion. And uh, actually, I think there's two. They're back here. We'll take communion together. There's a piece of paper on your chair. Um, I don't know, for me, it's helpful to reflect and write down uh, the things that are just held against me. Um, and you know why it's helpful to do this? One, it, it brings reverence to the cost of the cross. But two, I think the enemy loves to use that stuff against me. And when I, when I recognize the truth of the, of the cross, there's nothing held against me. I mean, it's unbelievable as a pastor that I can literally just go through the week and just see I shouldn't be up here teaching because of how terrible I am at times. But it's not because of that. It's because I stand in the blood of Jesus, covered by Him. So if you'd like, write that down, reflect, and offer it back to God. Let's pray together. Lord, um... We thank you, God, for, uh, for not giving us what we deserve. 
and for redefining for us um, what it means to be freed. That we actually have, we don't have to fear your wrath. That we can stand confidently in your presence knowing that you have done everything for us to be your children. Lord Jesus, I pray as we move towards the cross and towards Easter Sunday, Lord, that we would um, take seriously the cost of the cup of redemption. That we take seriously what it means um, for us to, to look upon you at the cross knowing that it should have been us up there. And Lord, teach us how to celebrate the resurrection as we walk through Good Friday. Pray, God, that as we uh, practice this ritual of communion, that we would take seriously the symbol that it is, that it is more than just juice and crackers. It's more than just a shirt sometimes. It's more than just a hug. Um, the story behind it is way more significant. So we just give you this time, and Holy Spirit, we invite you to minister to us now. come right now, I want to invite all of you that are followers of Jesus to come remembering what he did and let's take this in remembrance of him. So just come up and on your own time and we're going to continue to worship and celebrate Jesus, okay?